This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This week from Chicago, a conversation about gun violence with Shannon Watts, founder of Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America. Five, four, three, two, one, zero, ignition. Major Garrett, yes, CBS, yes, hi. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Major Garrett from the nation's capital. Major, fantastic. It's The Takeout. Major. With CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent. Major, that's nonsense. Major Garrett. And you should know better. Thank you, thank you, you. Welcome to the very best part of my broadcast week. I'm Major Garrett, host and creator of this most amazing program known as The Takeout, where each and every week we are two things primarily. What are those two things? One, relentlessly curious. Two, steadfastly non-ideological. All points of view, many points of view, always welcome here at the takeout table. You hear a lot of happy noise around us. We're on the road yet again. Very exciting for the show. We're in Chicago, the city of broad shoulders. I'm here for the Chicago Ideas Festival. I'll be participating in a panel on White House coverage tomorrow. But today, this is Monday, just so you can check your calendars. We are talking to Shannon Watts, who is the author of a brand new book called Fight Like a Mother. She is the founder of Moms Demand Action. She will explain more about what that organization is all about, her road to activism, and the underlying issues. I want to remind those who were early adopters to this program, very early on in our exploration of the takeout, when the show was just launching, I made you a promise. And the promise was this, that I would bring to our microphone strong women from all political points of view. And I think we've lived up to that. Shannon is another example of that. And they've been on both sides of the aisle. Stephanie Shriok was our guest when I made that pledge to you. She's head of EMILY's List. We've also had Carrie Severino, Judicial Crisis Network. She's a conservative activist. Jenny Beth Martin, Tea Party Patriots of America, also a conservative activist. Pramila Jayapal, one of the leaders in the Progressive Caucus of the House Democrats. Samantha Bee needs no introduction. Strong female voices. Why? Because I was raised by a strong mother. They're often overlooked or shunted aside in political conversation about policy. And I pledge to you that would not happen. I would do everything I could to find the most interesting, compelling female voices about politics and policy in this country. And if you don't think I'm living up to it, you let me know. But I try every week. With that as an introduction, Shannon Watts, it's great to have you at the microphone. That happy sound with the purple pig. And right downtown Chicago, this place is packed. We're going to have a great lunch. Ryan, our waiter, will be approaching the table shortly. Shannon. Hello, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for inviting me. It's great to be here. Tell my audience what you do and who you do it for. So I am the founder of Moms Demand Action, and it's an organization that was founded uh, in my kitchen. By you? By me, just hours after the horrific shooting in Sandy Hook. And I was a stay-at-home mom of five at the time. I'd had a corporate communications background 
about a decade in that career. But I had been a stay-at-home mom for five years of five kids. And I was at first, like so many people, completely devastated by the shooting. But then I got angry because as I watched television, I saw pundits and politicians saying that the solution was more guns. And I knew nothing about gun violence, gun laws, uh, activism or organizing. I only knew that that was wrong and that our nation was broken and I wanted to act. And how did you first act? What was the first thing you did to make this the reality it has become? Well, first I went online and I looked for something like Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which was so pivotal to me in the 1980s as a teen, where they really made people who got in their cars and put their families' lives at risk pariahs in society. And And got state legislatures to act. That's right. They were very effective. And I wanted to be part of that kind of badass army of women. So I went online and I looked for something. I assumed it existed. I would just join it. It would be that easy. And what I found were mainly male-run think tanks, um, some one-off state organizations, also run by men. And so I thought, okay, I'll just start my own Facebook page and have a conversation about this with other women. Now, keep in mind, I had 75 Facebook friends, so I don't know who I thought I was going to be talking to. But uh, as we all know, type A women find a way. And it was like lightning in a bottle. Suddenly, I was hearing from women all over the country who said, yes, it is time for all of us to get off the sidelines. You talk in the book about moments of knowing. Was this your preeminent moment of knowing? It was. It was this idea of I can take all the skills I have learned in my corporate career and my passion and my abilities, and then I can find other women across the country who can fill in where I don't have those skill sets. And suddenly I was working with perfect strangers to organize and set up chapters just like Mothers Against Drunk Driving in every single state of the country. So I want to remind my audience, I started my career as a police reporter in Amarillo, Texas in 1984, and I covered cop news in three different communities, Amarillo, Las Vegas, and Houston. And for those of you who don't know anything about Mothers Against Drunk Driving, to summarize, and then you can add on to it, Shannon, because you wanted to, and you are trying to follow their model, uh, they were mothers who were outraged about people driving drunk and killing innocent people. And they went to state legislatures, they went to county commissions, they went to city councils, and they said, you will do something about this or we will not leave, essentially. That was their lobbying model. Yes, that's exactly right. It was no more complicated than that. It it, it was angry women and mothers who were going to make sure you did the right thing to protect their families. And essentially daring people in power to tell them to go away. That's right. Because women are the majority of the voting electorate. And... For our organization, you know, here we are almost seven years old, and we have about 300,000 active volunteers. To put that in perspective, Mothers Against Drunk Driving has about 15,000. So it really goes to show you just how much we've grown exponentially. And alcohol is an industry. Guns, firearms are an industry. You write in the book that moms are scarier than gun lobbyists. I think Mothers Against Drunk Driving proved that mothers can be as effective, if not more effective, than alcohol industry lobbyists. That's right, because we are relentless when it comes to the safety of our kids. And lawmakers depend on our votes. And when we get involved and when we get educated about something, there's no going away until it happens. I want you to address something I came across in the book. Uh, Three adjectives you said sometimes come toward women who are active in politics. Shrill, harpy, bitch. I've been called all of those on a daily basis on Twitter. 
Yeah, there's this perception that if you're angry or you're demanding something or you have a political opinion, um, that you should go away or that it's not in keeping... Or there's with, something illegitimate about you. There's something you. illegitimate about me, right? Like I'm always accused of um, somehow being funded by men or that I'm not actually uh, an accidental activist, that I was groomed and planned. You know, it's all this nefarious assumptions about who I am and what I do. And how do you, A, deal with that internally keep yourself centered and how do you externally either challenge or try to refute that so you know that the threats of it's death rough stuff. it is the threats of death and sexual violence started immediately when i Against put up my you. facebook page yeah, me and my daughters so i have four girls uh and you know we had to call the police and file restraining orders i mean it was there was an underbelly of america that i did not know existed at that moment you had to make a decision what was it and how did you going. process it? Whether, I, whether this was something that was worth putting my life on the line for. And how, did you, how did you get around that? How did you grapple with that? That had to be a new experience for you. It was a, it was a totally new experience, but it made me angry. And the feeling that it engendered in me was that I was tr- people were trying to intimidate or silence me. And I was not going to do that. And... What did you learn on the other side of that decision? Meaning, I'm not going to back away. You're not going to run me out of this conversation. That it is just rhetoric. That it is just words. That it's faceless people on the internet trying to scare me or intimidate me. Howlers, I believe, is what uh, profilers call them. Yes, exactly. And it just made me more determined. And um, we have about a minute before we go to our first break. There's something I came across early in the book which I thought was fascinating. uh, Naptivism. What is naptivism? So moms and women are busy people. And I want people to understand that no amount of activism is too small. Everything matters. It's like drips on a rock. And sometimes calling your lawmakers can be intimidating. So we teach our volunteers how they can make the most of the time they have. Often that's when their kids are napping. To call their lawmakers, to send an email, to use a hashtag, because it all adds up to get on social media to basically do something in that intervening 15, 30, 45 minutes that you might not otherwise think of doing and still make an impact. Exactly. And you've seen that play itself out in state legislatures. We'll get into that in more detail in a moment. Uh, Our guest is Shannon Watts. She is the author of Fight Like a Mother. We're at the Purple Pig in downtown Chicago. I'm Major Garrett. You're listening and loving the takeout back for segment two in just a second. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to the great city of Chicago, the city of broad shoulders. So happy to be here. I'm here for the Chicago Ideas Festival, but we were really in a great position to do the show from here. I love taking the show on the road, meeting new folks, expanding the reach of The Takeout. And we had a chance to talk to Shannon Watts, who is the author of Fight Like a Mother. She is the founder of Mother Moms Demand Action. We're going to continue our conversation with her in a second. We're at the Purple Pig right downtown Chicago. Ryan is hovering. He's our waiter just to the edge of our conversation. When he appears, Shannon and I will order lunch. I want to give some context uh, to our conversation, folks. So um, at the back of the book, Fight Like a Mother, there are all these notes that uh, attribute the data in the book. So if you have the book or want it, you can run down the source material for the statistics I'm about to read off to you, because they're in there in the notes section. According to uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, 
There are 20,000 suicides by firearm in this country, 60 per day. That's eight times the developed world. And that's up 19% in the past decade. So gun violence and suicide are dramatically and tragically linked in this country. There are 393 million guns owned. 393 million guns owned in this country as of 2017. Population that year, 330 million, which means gun per person in America, 1.2. The number of guns owned in 2007, so just 10 years ago, 270 million. So in 10 years, we went from 270 million gun owns to 393 million. Let me read you some gun death statistics. 2014, 33,130. 2015, 36,252. 2016, 38,658. You can hear and in your mind see the trend line. Average gun deaths per day in this country, 96 of those 60 would be suicide. How much more likely, if you're an African-American, to be killed by a gun than a white person in this country? Ten times. What if you're an African-American child? What's the ratio of a white child being killed by guns? Fifteen times more likely if you're a black child in this country than a white child to be killed by a firearm. Oh, Ryan is here. Hello, Ryan. I promised you'd be approaching the bench, otherwise known as the table. So I'm going to have the house-made hot dog, which sounds like the low-cal, uh, non-fatty item on the menu oh, no. with the foie gras butter. Uh, I think that will probably take care of you, don't you? And Shannon, what would you like? I'll have the halibut. Thank you. There we go. That's always the contrast no we see gras. here you. at the takeout. I am the glutton. My guest is usually the wise, the wise and uh, calorie conscious and health conscious <laughs> eater. I never, ever am. So uh, those are statistics that you deal with day in and day out. Uh, what do they mean to you? And how is it that they inform your and your organization's worldview? When I started Moms Demand Action, I was a white, suburban housewife, essentially, stay-at-home mom. And I was worried, because of Sandy Hook, that my kids weren't safe in their schools. And that was the knowledge that I brought to this battle. Not realizing nearly 100 Americans are shot and killed every single day, as you mentioned, in city centers, in rural communities, homicides and suicides. And very quickly we came to realize we would need to address all of it, not just the mass shootings and the school shootings that get so much attention in this country. And that has been our focus, programs that educate people about gun suicide, that educate people about responsible gun storage, uh, the laws that are already in place, like the 17 states that have red flag laws that allow police and families to temporarily remove guns that are from someone who's a danger to themselves or others. Um, but also passing stronger laws like background checks and disarming domestic abusers. And then the work, the defensive work that no one really sees that is a huge win for us every year. We have a 90% track record of killing bad NRA bills. And so all of this work is about addressing all types of gun violence. Do you consider yourself hostile to gun ownership? Are you anti-gun? Do you want to get rid of all guns in America? That is a misnomer. Often people think that because we're doing this work, we're anti-gun or we don't support the Second Amendment. Nothing could be further from the truth. Many of our volunteers are gun owners or they're married to them. This is simply about restoring the responsibilities that go along with gun rights. What about assault weapons? We support an assault weapons ban. Uh, 
the top priorities for our organization are background checks, red flag laws, and disarming domestic abusers. Uh, but we have in some municipalities like Boulder and Pittsburgh passed uh, help those mayors pass assault weapons bans. We also work on high capacity magazines. So to limit the size of those, we found through research that that is effective in uh, reducing the amount of deaths in a mass shooting. Uh, but ultimately, the, the priorities have to be keeping guns out of the hands of dangerous people. Should the federal government buy back assault weapons, either on a voluntary or a mandatory basis? So you're talking about a proposal that's been put forward by one of the presidential candidates, yes. Beto O'Rourke. You know, we're hearing a lot of innovative ideas come out of the primary season, which is exciting for us that these candidates are competing for the first time ever to see who can be the best on this issue. They're putting as much energy into gun violence prevention as they are health care and jobs and the economy. So we're thrilled to see all these ideas be put forward. And it really it's up to the voters to decide what is attractive to them. Then it's our job as an organization to look at the data and the research and to decide what is the best way to adjudicate an assault weapons ban because there were too many loopholes and flaws to the law that existed in the 1990s. And, and frankly, the jury is still out on the best way to do that. So uh, for those in my audience uh, who, uh, and there are many Trump supporters in my audience, uh, who hear what you just said, describing in a general way a mandatory federal assault weapons buyback as an innovative idea, they would say, wow, that sounds like she's really for it. That sounds like she does want to confiscate firearms. That makes me nervous. What would you say to them? I, so I, I, an assault weapons ban, by definition, means that there won't, those wouldn't be available. Um, but, but the way to adjudicate an assault weapons ban... I mean, to is, deal with what's already on and available out there. Right. That, that is something we have not taken a position on as an organization because we need to look at the data to see what would be the most effective way to get those weapons off the streets. Understood. I want to play for you a soundbite. Arden, this is uh, number two. This is President Obama, December 14th, 2012, the day of the Sandy Hook Massacre. They had their entire lives ahead of them. Birthdays, graduations, weddings, kids of their own. As a country, we have been through this too many times, and we're going to have to come together and take meaningful action to prevent more tragedies like this, regardless of the politics. Well, meaningful action, regardless of the politics, didn't happen. And from that, some Americans throw up their hands in sort of a perpetual state of dismay. Did, I... did you consider that, throwing your hands up in dismay? Sure. You know, I, we spent the first few months trying to get this Mansion-Toomey bill passed. It would have closed the background check loophole in honor of the victims of Sandy Hook. And then it failed by a handful of votes in the Senate. And I can remember thinking maybe the country isn't ready for this yet. Maybe this is, you know, we've tried our best and we're going to go back to our normal lives. And what happened was that an army of type A women said, no, we're going to pivot and start doing this work in state houses and boardrooms because when you look at any social issue, Congress is often where this work ends, not where it begins. And I want to play for you uh, soundbite number five. Uh, this is during that debate on the Senate floor, Ted Cruz of Texas. In my opinion, adopting mandatory federal government background checks for purely private transactions between law-abiding citizens puts us inexorably on the path to a push for, universal, for, for a federal register. But my colleague... So, respond to that. A push for was, federal registration yeah. and then possibly 
confiscation or something of that like. Yeah, I was sitting in the Senate gallery that day, and I was incredulous as I heard him say this in the wake of such a horrific shooting. Look, we have background checks on licensed gun sales in this country. The idea that extrapolating those and then applying them to unlicensed sales is somehow going to lead us down a slippery slope of registration and confiscation is absurd. It's an NRA talking point, and Ted Cruz knows which side his bread is buttered on, and it is buttered by the gun lobby. That's the voice of Shannon Watts, our special guest. I'm Major Garrett. We're at the Purple Pig in downtown Chicago. Excited to be here. More of this program, segment three, coming up in just a second. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And if you like the show, please head over to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify to let us know. Subscribe, rate, and review. We thank you. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. Welcome back to Chicago. Purple Pig is the restaurant. Shannon Watts is our guest for you on CBSN. Here's the book. It's what it looks like. Fight like a mother. A um, couple more statistics. If you're asking yourself, hmm, what is the percentage worldwide of gun deaths in America? I mean, all the world's population, how many gun deaths occur here out of a percentage? Answer, 82%. Well, how much is our population compared to the worldwide population? Answer, 4.28%. Run the math yourself on that, folks. Um, So I want to give you three sound bites from the President of the United States, Donald Trump. One is on August 9th of this year, shortly after the El Paso and Dayton, Ohio mass shootings. Arden, play that. We have to have meaningful background checks. I talk about meaningful. Add that word. Meaningful background checks. Now, this is exactly six days later, August 15th. It's not the gun that pulls the trigger. It's the person holding the gun. This is six days later. We already have very serious background checks. We have strong background checks. Shannon Watts is our special guest. Shannon, uh, would you describe for my audience what you believe happened in those intervening days between what sounded like we need meaningful, meaningful... Oh, it's not the gun, and we have meaning. We have serious background. What happened? Well, it sounds like he had some conversations with Wayne LaPierre, the CEO of the NRA. But also, from the very beginning, Donald Trump has been a wild card on this issue. Uh, he received a $30 million investment to his campaign from the NRA. They were one of his largest outside donors. And they, they expect a return on their investment, and that includes listening to him in times of crisis. Describe for my audience what a background check is, what it covers, and what it does not. So a background check is already done millions of times in this country every single year on licensed gun sales. So if I go into a sporting goods store, I have to have a background check. That's right. Okay. And it only takes a few minutes, and they're looking to see if you have a criminal history or if you've ever been adjudicated mentally ill. And if you have been, they won't let you purchase the gun. Now, there is a loophole that if your background check doesn't clear in three days, that dealer has the right to sell you the gun without a background check, like happened with the Charleston shooter. But most background checks work well, and they work quickly, and they're effective. And millions of prohibited purchasers have been prevented from buying guns since they were passed. What transactions are not covered? Uh, Well, so for example, domestic abusers. Right now, uh, stalkers and dating partners are not considered prohibited purchasers. 
um, there are several loopholes that allow people through the system, even though they may have a dangerous background. However, all unlicensed sales in this country, um, unless a state has changed it, don't require a background check. So only 21 states have gone in and closed that loophole. They require background checks on both licensed and unlicensed sales. But the federal law does not require that. What if I want to buy a gun online? If you buy a gun online, if you live in a state that doesn't require a background check on an unlicensed sale, you can meet that person, make the transaction, no questions asked. And no check? No check. And talk to me about your interactions, your organization's interactions with Facebook on this question. We started our organization on Facebook and then realized very quickly that Facebook is actually one of the largest gun dealers in the country. And they were allowing... Say that again. Facebook is the online marketplace where many, many gun transactions in this country So happen. it's one of the largest online places where firearms transactions are carried Traded out. and sold, yep. And they were allowing some of these ads to include language like no background check required. And when we did the research, we found that felons, uh, domestic abusers, even minors were getting guns this way through Facebook posts and ads. And so we asked them to change their policy. We embarked on a campaign. It only took a few months, and they put in place about nine policies. It included not allowing minors to see guns, uh, gun ads. But we kept up, and we did a research project, and we were able to show them, look, this is how domestic abusers are getting guns on your platform. And so it took about two years, but they eventually stopped all unlicensed gun sales on their platform. I want to talk to you about something that you write about a couple of times in the book. Toxic masculinity. What is it? How does it influence this issue? Well, we we see over and over again, and and particularly in the last several years, that uh, men who are committing these crimes because they have been um, indoctrinated, maybe through the Internet, uh, to be what is called an incel, this idea of women uh, are are gaining power, and so there's there's a backlash. And look, that happens in every country. There's to- toxic masculinity, there's domestic violence everywhere. What makes it different in America is that we give these people easy access to arsenals and ammunition. And um, you also make a couple of references in the book to um, m- men, if not being the problem in legislative circles, being a hindrance to what you're trying to accomplish, and that you need to mobilize women against Men, is that, am, I, am I overreading that? I would say we what we need to do is make sure that we have a seat at the table. As the proverb goes, yes. if you don't have a seat at the table, you're probably on the menu. And we see that over and over again. And I think the Violence Against Women Act is a good example of that. Uh, for the first time, the Violence Against Women Act, which is sitting on Senate Majority Leader's desk uh, for a vote, it includes a provision that would close this loophole I mentioned to you. We call it the boyfriend loophole. It allows stalkers and dating partners to have easy access to guns. And we want them to be included in that federal law that prohibits domestic abusers from buying guns. And so that would close that loophole. And yet 80% of Congress is men, and they don't seem to think this is an urgent issue. Are you compensated in your role with this organization? No, I'm a full-time volunteer. And why do you do that? Uh, clearly, your work uh, has a uh, visibility to it. You have accountability. You are uh, a leader, though you talk in great detail in the book about learning to delegate and the power of delegating and the necessity of that. But nevertheless, why, why aren't you allowed to take compensation? 
you know, I never wanted to be a lobbyist. I wanted to be an activist and an organizer. And I also wanted to have some juxtaposition between me and the CEO, Wayne LaPierre of the NRA, someone who is compensated about $5 million a year um, and who spends their members' money on Italian suits and private jet travel and all kinds of other things that we're seeing through recent investigations. And so I think there's a very clear delineation. What is a stroller jam? <laughs> so stroller jam started in Maryland when we realized that our strollers and our baby paraphernalia were preventing lawmakers from getting through the hallway without being stopped to answer our questions. And no, 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 no. That hot dog oh comes gosh, over get here, that sir. that hot dog away from yeah, me. Yeah. There wow, we go. That yeah. is Bring something. the hot dog to Papa. Okay, and there we go. There we go. You. Yes. Yeah, feast your eyes on this, that ladies is... and gentlemen. I will tackle this during the break, because if I try to tackle this now, it will it will not end well. I, I'm in awe of yes, looking at that Yes, so dog. am I. So is everybody on CBSN, and soon will be. Uh, so stroller, back to yeah, stroller so, jams. So we realized so, so, we so literally the moms are showing up in yes. legislative hallways, and they have strollers, and they Baby have stuff, da- you know, the da- whole carriers, uh, diaper bags, the whole thing. Filling up the hallways. Right. And so lawmakers couldn't get over it. We had to let them through, but before we would... We, we, of course, peppered them with questions. We want to talk. Yes. And so we replicated that all over the country in state houses, at the Capitol, on, on public transportation. And it's a really effective mom tactic. And it takes time. It takes time, yeah. You've got to be there for hours. Oh, we, we show up and sit in gun bill hearings sometimes for 17 hours at a time, even just to play defense, to put eyeballs on lawmakers and say, not in my state, you're not going to pass this. Not in my community, you won't do this. So, uh, I want, again, uh, we, we at this program like to talk about terminology. What is open carry? Open carry is legal in 45 states. In about 40 states, it's almost completely unregulated. And it's what does it mean? Open carrying a handgun or a long gun, like a semi-automatic rifle, without a holster. And so that other people in public can see it. And, you know, I've lived in Indiana and Colorado, and you see this regularly, where people take their guns very visibly out in public. And the fact that it's not regulated, it doesn't require a background check or training or permitting in many states, makes it very culturally unacceptable, but also dangerous. And we're going to talk on the other side of this break about uh, open carry, concealed carry, and the efforts your organization has undertaken to have a dialogue with businesses in this country about whether or not those customers open carrying their firearms are welcome. I'm Major Garrett. That's the voice of Shannon Watts. We're in Chicago, the Purple Pig. Back for segment four in a second. I think women are perfectionists, and so often we feel like if we give away any work that we're falling down on the job or maybe that other people can't do it as well as we can, and that is a surefire path to burnout. From CBS News, this is The Takeout with Major Garrett. A very distracted host and creator of this program, I am because this house-made hot dog is right in front of me. It is epic in every respect. For those of you watching on CBSN, you're going to get a very long look at this because I dare not try to eat this as I typically do during the conversation because it will get all over my lap. But I had a bite of these flash-fried mashed potatoes. Wow. Okay. Uh, Purple Pig has got it done and gets it done well. We're at the Purple Pig at downtown Chicago. Our special guest, Shannon Watts, continuing our conversation about her organization. Give the full name of it so I so my audience knows it because I've 
read it off the book, but I want the full name. Moms to Man. Oh, the book or my? Uh, no, oh, for, for your organization. Moms to Man Action for Gun Sense in America. Okay, and uh, we were talking before we went to break about open carry and concealed carry, and how your organization has engaged with big retailers in this country. Explain that. So we have certain levers of power that we can pull as women. One is the fact that we are the majority of the voting electorate, but the other is our spending power. We make about 80% of the spending decisions for our families. And we realized early on that when we talked, that corporate leaders listened. And it started with Starbucks. We saw that they were allowing open carry inside their stores, um, but they weren't allowing cigarettes 20 feet outside their stores. And we're much more afraid of secondhand bullets than secondhand smoke. So we embarked on a campaign. We were so small, we called it a mom cot. It could only be on the weekends that we didn't have their coffee. And we also made images. Not a boycott, a mom right, cot. exactly. We made images of what open carry looks like inside their stores go viral. And within three months, the CEO, Howard Schultz, came out and said guns were no longer welcome inside their stores, period, not just open carry. And that early win made us realize that we could replicate this. And we have at Target and Sonic and Chipotle and so many other American companies. And if I were to sit with you and say, okay, Shannon, I hear you. I respect you. Uh, I'm a law-abiding person in my community. I have a 9mm. I have a permit for it. It's, I've done the training that my state requires. What gives you the right to tell me I can't get a cup of coffee at Starbucks and bring my legally licensed and trained on 9mm into the store? For us, this is not about concealed carry, which in most states is more regulated. This is about open carry, which is culturally you reprehensible. Between the two. Yes. Okay. So open carry being culturally reprehensible, but also dangerous. I mean, if you look at the El Paso shooting at Walmart, uh, the sheriff there said he didn't break the law until he opened fire. That he walked in in tactical gear with a semi-automatic rifle, legal in the state of Texas and allowed by Walmart policies until now. And we were able to get them to change their policy within weeks after that shooting. Right. As a representation of that, and correct me if I'm wrong, I know you know this much better than I do, a couple of days or within a week later, somebody walked into a Walmart in Missouri, Springfield, I believe, demonstrating his rights. That's right. He was testing the open carry policy at Walmart. And that ended up being sort of the nail in the coffin on this issue for the... the Kind of a shock trauma for Walmart as a corporation. Yes. They said no more. And you believe, and you believe data will back you up on this, that that will make communities safer? In part, it will make us safer in that it shouldn't be up to employees and customers to decide whether someone open caring is about to open fire or they're just... How could you possibly Exactly. And and there are examples of this. So uh, in Colorado Springs, a man was walking up and down the street with a rifle. A woman called 911. The operator said, ma'am, that's legal in our state. She no sooner hung up the phone than he opened fire and killed four innocent people. So this is really just about being precautious. I want to play uh, a soundbite from President Bill Clinton. This is uh, number four, Arden. This is in May 2nd, 1994. The president then advocating for something he achieved, the assault weapons ban. Every great society is going to face, for the foreseeable future, these incredible tensions between our freedom and our abuse of our freedom, between the need for liberty and the need for order, between our desire to have an entrepreneurial, free-flowing society and the absolute need for some discipline that enables us to live as human beings civilly together and give our children a chance to grow up. 
And some of the decisions we'll have to make will be more difficult than this. But this is a lay-down no-brainer. And the Congress must not walk away from it. That democratically-led Congress didn't. It passed the assault weapons ban as part of a crime bill. I was there at the time. I covered that legislation. I covered the midterm election that followed it in very short order. And Democrats lost the majority of the House for the first time in 40 years. And there are those who went back and looked and saw that that decision about the assault weapons ban and the attendant crime bill may have been among the most costly political decisions Democrats made. And they reaped the whirlwind from it. How do you recount that history as you thought about it? I would push back a little bit on that in that I think that's an an NRA myth that they want people to believe. They wanted lawmakers to believe. Um, When we look at what really caused that, some of it was the health care issues that some of it was health care some of it was a tax increase some exactly. of it was guns. so the, the nra has been in largely a paper tiger since 2010 their return on investment on investments in elections has been dwindling um, they've lost power they are now under investigation on several fronts they're weaker than they've ever been and i think that what we're seeing is that stranglehold that they've had on lawmakers has been released finger by finger and when we work and we are, we are a, a nonpartisan organization, we are pretty easily able to work across the aisle, even in states like Arkansas. Uh, but it's Congress where this is more entrenched. Before we finish out the radio segment of this program, because I want a radio audience to understand that your book is not just about the issue and activism, but it's also a way to talk about your own life experience with this, how it's created a test for you personally how you've had to learn as a leader, and how you've had to manage this internally as a wife and a mother. You've got a minute 30. Run with that, in your own words, because I don't want to put words in your mouth. Yeah, I, I mean, I certainly never imagined I would be the tip of the spear on such a volatile issue in this country. And uh, it has tested my family and my relationships at times, uh, whether it's uh, my travel and being away from my kids and husband, or uh, it's doing this work in a, in a family full of um, Trump voters. You know, my dad was not very happy about me doing this at first and now is actually a, a volunteer. Um, but, but also just learning how to operate outside of the corporate structure. Uh, managing volunteers is nothing like being a corporate leader. And it's been incredibly rewarding, but also very challenging. You talk about not owning everything. That's a bit of advice yes. you give to someone who is in a position or may find himself or herself, but principally in your voice, herself, in this position. What does that mean, don't own everything? I think women are perfectionists. And so often we feel like if we give away any work that we're falling down on the job or maybe that other people can't do it as well as we can. And that is a surefire path to burnout. And it's a myth. It's a myth. Yes, you have to share the load. And uh, don't sacrifice your health or your marriage for a cause. No, you, look, this is a marathon, not a sprint, but it's also a relay race. Pass the baton. The work will still be there when you get back. That's the voice of Shannon Watts, our special guest. We're in downtown Chicago, the city of broad shoulders, one of my favorite places in all of America. Her book, Fight Like a Mother, The Restaurant, The Purple Pig. My lunch hasn't been eaten yet, but it will be soon. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week, folks. For more from this week's conversation, download the Takeout Outtake Especial Tuesday morning, wherever you get your podcasts. The Takeout is produced by Arden Farin, Katiana Krachenko, Jamie Benson, 
Sarah Cook, and Ellie Watson. CBSN production by Alex Zuckerman, Eric Susanen, and Grace Seegers. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Takeout Podcast. That's at Takeout Podcast. And for more, visit TakeoutPodcast.com. The Takeout is a production of CBS News Radio. Bye. Bye bye. If you like the takeout, you can listen early and ad free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com/slash survey. Survivor's back, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast. And we have a twist, a new co-host, the winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladaris. Hi! Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. I'm CBS News correspondent Major Garrett, host of the podcast Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen. During the Cold War, FBI agent Robert Hansen traded classified secrets to the Kremlin in exchange for cash and jewels. In the podcast, you'll hear from Hansen's closest friends, family members, victims, and colleagues for the most comprehensive telling of who Robert Hansen really was. Binge the entire series now. Agent of Betrayal, The Double Life of Robert Hansen is available on the Wondery app, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.